Now hear God's holy word from Genesis chapter 1, the first two verses of the entire Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that dwells in us and with us. And just as he hovered over the face of the deep, just as he hovered over the waters of the baptism of our Lord Jesus, so now he broods over us and he hovers over us now. So fill us with that spirit that creates and recreates and regenerates so that we can be led to more and more conformity to your son and to lives that are pleasing to you. Father, strengthen us with your word and our reflection upon it today. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Growing up, as I think you well know by now, I spent a lot of time with old movies and old TV series and old shows of all kinds. And one, one particular genre that I've recently uh, hoped to get back into and expose my children to is the old, uh, the Japanese big monster movie, uh, the, the Godzilla and the uh, other, you know, Ghidorah and Mothra and all those other things. As a child watching those movies and watching them on Saturday afternoon, um, the, the one thing that always uh, tripped up my mind and took me out of the, out of the uh, enjoyment of the show was who's going to clean up all that mess? When, when, uh, when Godzilla stomps through Tokyo and knocks down all these buildings, I think, are, are there people in there? What's going on? And then secondly, uh, who is going to sweep up all this rubble? Who's going to clean it up? And it would take me right out of the experience. And I would worry more about that than what it was actually happening on the screen. Have you ever had such an incredibly huge mess that you didn't know just where you would start? How do I, how do I fix this? Where do I begin? We've all seen images of destruction and wreckage, real destruction on the news. Whenever there's a natural disaster, like a tornado or a hurricane or an earthquake, buildings and houses are reduced to splinters and rubble. Where do you start? Where do you start cleaning up the mess? And how do you start rebuilding? The sight of large-scale disorder and chaos is overwhelming, and it can be paralyzing. There's one image that stuck in my mind from um, the, uh, the New Orleans area after Hurricane Katrina swept through. Many of you know, I, I, after a few days after the hurricane, I went down with a group of friends in pickup trucks. We went with water and we went with food and we went with sleeping bags and chainsaws and we just showed up saying, what, what can we do? We went around to the churches asking if they had members who were in need of any help and we just tried to work and do whatever we could. But one image from that that stuck in my mind, there was a guy with a large tree on his house. The, the tree was, the limbs were jutting into every room of the house and, and it was just sitting there um, having, having d demolished his, his home. And he was out in the front yard with a rake, raking the limbs and raking the leaves. And that was such a, uh, just a p pitiful, and, and, not, and I'm not saying that in a judge, judgmental way, but just a, 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 a picture of this powerlessness in the face of a problem that he was absolutely unable to fix by himself. He's going to need lots of help. 
over many weeks to move his life and property from disorder to order. He's going to need a lot more than a rake. And yet here's maybe the one thing I can do. Maybe the one thing I have control over. And he's, he's out there raking. But let's take that picture and that image and, and um, isolate that. And imagine for just a moment that he got used to the large tree being on top of his house with limbs going into the bedrooms and the kitchen and the ceiling sagging and water coming into the house. Just imagine that over time, he just kind of got used to it. He wasn't doing anything to remove it. He wasn't getting help from the resources available to him, his insurance, his neighbors, his volunteers who were showing up. He just became content with the rubble with the chaos and disorder. You, you know, you, you, you sense this sometime when there's a little scratch on your car or maybe there's a part of the siding on the back of your house that kind of needs to be replaced, but you don't get to it right away, you don't fix it right away, and then after a while you kind of forget about it or every time you mow the grass you say, oh yeah, that thing, but otherwise you're not paying attention to it. You just kind of, you kind of get used to it. Well, well think about it, it being like that, except it's a tree on your house and you say, this is fine. I can, we can live around this. We can work with this. We can get used to this. Now that might sound really silly and, I'm, and that's the point. That sounds really ridiculous. Who would do that? But the fact is that you and I have this strange tendency to being used to things being out of joint. We live in a world where so many things are broken, so many things are off kilter, that it feels quite overwhelming when we think about the extent of the devastation, the effects of the wreckage. So it's easier often just to go along with it, learn how to live with the disorder, to build our lives around the colossal problem. And then in fact, not only to live with it, but also to contribute to it. You see, the disorder that we tolerate is not only caused by forces external to us, but also the disorder that we live with comes from within us. We create confusion and calamity and wreckage by our own sin. We make significant contributions to the ruin and then we become inured to the ugliness. We get very used to the, the wreckage. James in his epistle, he writes about the relationship chaos that we create with our warring and our fighting. And James says in the middle of that, he says, don't you know that the spirit who dwells in you yearns jealously? What, what, is, what is he talking about? This, the, the, the business of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us is to move things from disorder to order. The Holy Spirit's work is to move things from chaos to glory. He is the person of the Trinity who superintends the created order. And all Christians have that Holy Spirit alive in them. And that spirit yearns jealously. He is entirely unsatisfied with the lawlessness and the shapelessness in the void. He is jealously yearning to transform things and make all things new. Well, that's in James' epistle, Jude, later um, in his little epistle, Jude writes about the self-indulgent, rudderless, wandering, undisciplined, corrupt men that they're facing. And he spends most of his short epistle on that long litany of disruptive, unruly behavior. And then he caps off his description this way. He says, these are sensual persons who cause divisions 
not having the Spirit. This, this is why there's so much disorder and so much chaos in the world is because these men are walking around not under the leadership or submission to the Holy Spirit. Living apart from God's Holy Spirit leads to chaos. It contributes to the chaos. Having the Spirit and walking and praying in the Spirit provides structure and order and law and peace. So I want to focus on this facet of the Holy Spirit's work together today. Every Pentecost Sunday, we, we take a look at a different facet of the Spirit's work. And, and, and today, I want to view the Holy Spirit as organizer, as reconstructor, the Holy Spirit as creator and recreator. Of course, we do that because, as I said, this Lord's Day is Pentecost. This is 50 days after Easter, and today we celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the people of God. But this may be a gift that we don't quite know how to receive. We know that the Holy Spirit is God's gift from the Son, from the Father and the Son to us, but but we don't know how to receive Him. And, And that may be the first issue is that often we respond to or think about the Holy Spirit as it, or as if it's, it, it, he's a power or, or some nameless, faceless uh, electricity or something. Um, Christians in our generation tend to place the work of the Holy Spirit purely in the jurisdiction of the emotional or the subjective or mysterious things. You can't touch, touch taste, see, hear, feel. We're not exactly sure what the work of the Holy Spirit is. Can't quite manage to articulate it. It's all about some vague sense of comfort or empowerment. But indeed, the Spirit does give comfort. The Spirit is mighty and powerful, but not because he's operating in some fuzzy, subjective, emotional territory, but rather that the created order is the Holy Spirit's primary area of operation. Every time the Holy Spirit moves in someone or on something in the Bible, it has a profound effect on the physical realm. In the scriptures, there's no spirit-matter dichotomy so that uh, in, in this you know, Greek philosophical sense, everything spiritual is good, everything physical is bad. The, the Bible doesn't uphold that dichotomy. When the Spirit works and when He moves, He moves on and in and through human flesh and on created things. And so from the very beginning of recorded history, the Holy Spirit has been at work bringing creation, order, the physical matter of life from disorder to structure. That's what he's been doing. He's been yearning, as James said, jealously yearning to provide structure. And so on the day of Pentecost, as we heard in our uh, scripture lesson this morning from Acts, he hovered over the church. He brooded over the church, just like he brooded over the face of the deep at creation, just as he hovered over the waters of Jesus' baptism, and in fact hovered over the waters of the flood and over the uh, waters of the Red Sea, each time bringing a new creation out of an old world. In Reformed theology, we talk about regeneration to describe the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing us from death to life. And that's a great word, uh, regeneration, because without Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sins. But the Holy Spirit, he regenerates us, gives us life, and he gives us the ability to respond to God's call of grace. We are able with that life to repent and believe the gospel. So that that movement from death 
to life, that movement from even spiritual death to spiritual life, that, that is, that's what we call regeneration. In more recent theological usage, regeneration has been used to refer to just that moment when the Holy Spirit flips the switch and we're converted. But the much older usage of the term regeneration refers to the whole process of the work of the Holy Spirit over the length of our lives. John Calvin used the word regeneration almost as a synonym of sanctification, which, which isn't a one-time thing. It's not just a flip of a switch. It's not just an instant in time, but it's a long-term project. We are being regenerated. Uh, and, and it's an entire course of development over our lives. So just as a city reduced by disaster is slowly built up over time and made lovely again, so you and I require the Holy Spirit's continual work bringing us from disorder to order. So, so where do we go in the scriptures to find an outline of how, this, how the Spirit does this? Where do we go to understand the order that he uses as he brings things from a void to loveliness? Well, of course, in the creation account, in the first chapter of the Bible, we see the work of the Spirit in doing this very thing. And so this morning, I would like to try this. I don't know how this is going to go. I'm going to try this, and I want to walk through the days of creation and see how the Spirit works and moves and see what we can learn about the operation of the Holy Spirit on creation and see what that says about His operation and His work on us. Well, you know what happens on the first day of creation? God says, let there be light. The only source of light must have been the Spirit Himself. How do I know that? Well, the sun hasn't been created yet. There is no sun. There are no stars. There's no other light but that that comes from God himself. The Spirit is the light, and he's the Spirit who illuminates. Wherever we see God in the Scriptures, he's clothed in light. He is clothed in glory, and the Spirit is the glory of the Trinity. So God begins bringing life into the world God begins structuring the world by inserting his Holy Spirit into the world and by shining into it, lighting his fire on that, that altar. Light brings the ability to see. Light gives us the ability to judge things with our eyes, to know and to be seen as well. When light comes, ignorance flees, fear flees. Nothing can creep around in the dark when you have a great light. Everything is exposed. Everything is revealed. And so in the same way, when the Holy Spirit does his work of regeneration in us, he begins by shining his light, the light that reveals his word. Before he shines his light, before he illumines us or illuminates us, things aren't clear. We can't see him for who he is. We can't recognize his works or be thankful for them. You can't read in the dark, as I've often uh, told my son in the back seat. You know, when you're on a trip as a kid, you just want that last little bit of light so you can still, still read because when the lights go out and it's dark, you, uh, you, you can't read anymore. Uh, and you have to just sit there and think. Um, 
and that's a scary prospect. Um, so, uh, so you're waiting for that last little bit of light, and I tell you, you can't read in the dark, and so you're going to ruin your eyes. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's just one of those things dads have to say, right? You're going to ruin your eyes. Moms say that too. You can't read in the dark, but when the Holy Spirit shines his light, you see, and everything becomes visible. He exposes all things to the light, and our sin is exposed so that we can see it for the ugliness that it is. We can see for the first time, oh, wait, there's a tree on my house. Oh, yes, there is a big problem here. We see the distortions and the corruptions and the disorder that we're living with, and we know that it's out of joint. In, John, uh, in 1 John 2, the apostle puts it this way. He says, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. Well, that anointing language throughout the Bible is always paired with the Spirit. It's always associated with the Spirit. Jesus says in John's Gospel, the Spirit of truth guides you into all truth. We're talking about the same thing here. So when John says that you have anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things, your, your mind is lit up with the light of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that we're instantly made omnicompetent so that we know everything about everything, but that we do have the Holy Spirit as a guide and a teacher of truth who leads us to understanding and leads us to receive God's word, to be able to see the world around us in his light as we abide in him. The world only makes sense by the light of the Holy Spirit. And so the first thing he does is he gives light. That's number one. Day two, and from there, going into day two of the creation week, the Spirit begins actively structuring the world by pulling things apart and giving them names. He divides light from darkness. He divides day from night. He divides waters from waters. There's waters above and waters beneath. And that extends even into day three. He divides the land from the water. That's an interesting window into the operation of the Holy Spirit. He separates one thing into two things, and then he puts them into a new relationship to each other. Where else does he do this? Well, he separates man from the earth, and then he says, man, now go take dominion over the earth. And then later he separates woman from man, and then he puts them back together in marriage. He does this over and over and over in the sacrificial system. He takes uh, man, uh, gives animals in sacrifice to God. Those animals are pulled apart on the altar. And by this pulling apart, now man and God are in fellowship with each other once again. In our study of Samuel, we saw that God was displeased with his tabernacle and the activity that was going on there. So he separated the altar, he separated the ark from the tent of meeting, from the tabernacle of meeting. He separated them, he killed the tabernacle, and then he resurrected it. He put it back together in a new and glorious way in Solomon's temple. Jesus is taken apart on the cross. He's taken apart in body and blood. And then he's put back together as a resurrected and ascended savior, resurrected and ascended king. And that brings man and God together in peace. That's a table. Jesus breaks bread in half and he says, this is my body. He gives it a new name and we receive it and we are remade into one new loaf. This is how the spirit works and we need to be aware of it. This is a window into his operation. Often the spirit breaks things apart and then puts them back together in new and glorious and useful ways. He's doing that with us today in worship. We come to him having broken his covenant and step one is to be pulled apart, to confess our sins, to confess our idolatry, to separate us, to cleanse us. And now as we move into the study of his 
his word. He cuts us up, as it were, on the altar. He's going to put us back together at the Lord's table. He does that in worship, and he does it in all kinds of big and small ways throughout our lives. He takes things away from you, and then he'll bring other things back in different ways. He breaks us down, and he builds us up. He makes separations so that he can put things together in a new way that please him even more. That is part of his regenerative work, which means if you want the Holy Spirit to work in your life, you have to be ready to be separated from some things. You have to be ready to be broken down. You must be available to die and to be resurrected. We want everything to stay the same. We don't want anything to change. We want everything to stay as it is. We don't want anything to be taken away from us. We just want it to to stay, you know, where it is. But doing that, we resist regeneration. We resist the maturity that comes with submitting to the Holy Spirit. We are resisting the Holy Spirit. And so in creation, in the creation week, the very next thing he does after he shines his light is he starts pulling things apart and he starts putting them back together in new ways. On day three, and and if you're following along, I'm not going to read verse by verse, but I'm going to refer to it. And so you can look and and reference uh, Genesis 1 as as I move through this week. On day three, what does the Spirit do? He clothes the land with glory. Out of, the, out of the earth comes grass and herbs and fruit trees. Plants and trees are the primary form of decoration on the earth. They provide color in both leaves and flowers. They give sweet smells. They give food for men and animals that live on the earth. Anything that grows outward and extends outward is often described in the scriptures as glory. The the glory of an ox is his horns. The glory of a lion is his mane. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, the glory of a woman is her hair. And if you read some of the church fathers, they say the glory of a man is his beard. Uh, And you can take that or leave it. It's not not inspired, but that's what it is. So the glory of the, the glory of the land that grows out from it and extends is the vegetation, the life that grows and reaches outward from the soil and that clothes the land. That's its glory. What this reveals about the Spirit's work is that not only is he concerned about structure and not only is he concerned with orderliness, but he's concerned with loveliness and beauty as well. We think those two things are opposite. It can either be structured or it can be lovely. It can either be orderly or it can be beautiful. And what the Holy Spirit shows us is, no, in my structuring work, I also make things lovely. When he brings the world to order, he doesn't make it look like a communist country with uniform, featureless, gray, concrete block buildings. He gives it a surplus of various shapes and hues, patterns and markings, widths and heights and depths, a superabundance of imaginative creativity in giving us these uh, plants and trees on the earth. He gives mighty oak trees and rose bushes and hydrangeas full of blooms, apple trees and pecan trees with all their fruit. More plants than one man can name or count. He could have made just one kind of tree, just a tree, you know, the kind of tree you drew in kindergarten. It's just, you know, a tree. And then cut 
and paste it over and over and over and over throughout the entire earth. He could have made one kind of fruit. And this is good. It's for food. It gives you calories and it tastes okay. So I'm just going to take this fruit and I'm going to replicate it over and over and over. But he didn't do that. It pleased him to clothe the world in a diverse kind of glory. That's how he operates. The Holy Spirit provides not just order, but loveliness. What does that teach us? Not just order, but loveliness. Well, one thing it teaches me is that it matters not just what you say, but how you say it. It doesn't matter just what you do, but how you do it. That there, there's being right, and then there's doing what is right. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy are both necessary. And we could meditate on that some more, what that means. Well, when this creative spirit fills man, this glorious uh, spirit who, who, who clothes, the, clothes the world in glory, whenever we see him filling mankind, he moves man to carry on his creative work. We read that the Holy Spirit filled a man named Bezalel in the construction of the tabernacle. Bezalel was commissioned to oversee the work of the construction of the tabernacle. And Bezalel, when he makes the tabernacle, he doesn't just give us a square utilitarian tent. That's functional, square, it's a tent and it, and it works. No, but when Bezalel does his work, he brings all the color and all of the life and all of the glory of the world into the tabernacle. All of the world is represented there at the tabernacle. Animal, vegetable, mineral. There's skins and hides of animals. There's wood. There's precious metals and stones. There are things that replicate other things in the created world. And both in the architecture of the tabernacle and in the clothing of the priest, these things are present. The world is clothed with glory, so the tabernacle is clothed with glory. And the priest has vestments of glory. And when you are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you are clothed with glory. You put on Christ in the waters of baptism. You eat and drink glory at his table. These, these plants that grew up produce uh, grain for the bread and wine. I'm sorry, grapes for the, for the wine. You eat and drink this glory. And he fills you in such a way that you're not just a worker drone, but that you continue the Spirit's work of loveliness and creativity and imagination. He clothes the world with glory. At the end of day three, the world is no longer dark. It's no longer shapeless. It's no longer empty. The Spirit by day three has brought light and order and fulfillment to the earth. And so he does the same to us. On day four, at the center of the creation week, the spirit delegates his light to the heavenly body, sun, moon, and stars. And it's likely at this point that the Holy Spirit spins the universe into movement, into motion. He puts the lights there and he delegates them his light and they're made to govern. And so he delegates them authority. These lights, he says, I put them here for symbols, for seasons. And the word there, as I've pointed out many times, is festival times. It's not just, you know, winter, summer, but festival seasons for days and years. How do we know that today is Pentecost? Well, the sun has come up 50 times since Easter. Well, how do we know 
That was Easter. Well, traditionally, we celebrate Easter on the first Sunday after the first full moon, after the first day of spring, after the vernal equinox. And so we calculate Easter is the first Sunday after the first full moon, after the first day of spring, and that's when Easter is. Our lives and our festival seasons are still ordered and governed by the heavenly bodies. Most of you will go to work tomorrow. Why do you go to work tomorrow? Well, the sun's come up twice since the last time you've been to work. The, the earth has rotated on its axis two times since you last went to work. And for the next five rotations, you'll be at work. Those are work days. You see, some people want to buck against all that and say, time is this arbitrary human construct and we should get back to a more natural existence without time and calendars and clocks. But you see, it's God who created the calendar. He created day and night. He created weeks and seasons and years. And then we have taken further dominion over time by dividing the day into hours and minutes and seconds so that our days have even more structure and order. The Spirit on day four puts the earth under authority. The earth submits to the heavenly bodies, and so the Spirit in regeneration puts us under authority. We are submitted to God's law and to doing what pleases Him. He establishes authority in the earth that He puts us under as well. He puts us under the state and under the church, and under the family. This is the Spirit's work to place us in and under positions of authority. If you want chaos in the world, if you want disorder, it's easy. All you got to do is undermine authority. That's the way to do it. That's the quickest path to, to confusion. Just undermine authority. Pretend that you aren't under any authority and see how blessed and peaceful that life is. The Spirit brings us under His rule and under the rule of those institutions He has ordained for our good. And then, and then when we've matured, He gives us authority and dominion that we exercise by following Him. But when there's no order, when there's confusion, when there's disorder, it means, I can tell you one thing, there is a lack of submission to authority somewhere, somewhere. When there's confusion, when there's trouble, when, when there's disaster in our lives and relationships, there's somewhere a lack of submission to authority that's been ordained by God. On day five, what does the Spirit do? He fills the sky with birds and He fills the waters with fish. The earth abounds with life and noise and activity. Great clouds of swimming and flying creatures that can do things that men can't do. We can't flap our wings. We don't have them. We can't flap our arms and fly. We can't live underwater. We can't do these things. But when Jesus comes, He uses these things to teach us lessons about ourselves. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a great tree and all the birds of the air come and nest in it. And we see that and we say, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, we're the birds in that, aren't we? Yeah, we're the birds. Okay, well, what does that mean? And he says to his disciples, you are fishers of men. Well, men are like fish. Well, how are they like fish? These strange creatures teach us things that we couldn't learn otherwise. But most importantly, he says, the Spirit says to these swarms of birds and fish, he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. There are billions and billions of you, but I want billions more. And so when the Spirit's work with us, he not only puts us into swarms of humanity, he puts us into families and communities. Most importantly, he unites us to his body, the church. He puts us in the church, but he gives us ability to make more. He says to us, be fruitful and multiply, re reproduce, not only physically, yes, physically, but spiritually and intellectually to make disciples. I, I know I've pointed this out before. 
Um, in, the, in the book of Acts, every time someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, and you can check me on this, but every time someone is filled with the Spirit in the book of Acts, they speak. Every single time. They pray, they preach, they sing, they share the gospel. Every single time somebody's filled with the Spirit. And so that tells me that when you're filled with the Spirit, you say something. Something comes out of your mouth. The Spirit is the breath of God, and those who are filled with the breath of God exhale that breath. They breathe out God's words into a dead world. The Spirit gives the word power and strength and effectiveness for calling people to Jesus and the transforming of lives. So the Spirit who regenerates us and fills us empowers us to be fruitful and multiply through the speaking of the words of life and populating the earth with great swarms of people who worship the Lord Jesus. And that's what he does on day five. On day six, God creates the things that creep on the earth. He creates land animals. He creates great herds of cattle and other beasts. And then he creates man out of the dust of the earth. And he puts his spirit into man and makes him a living spirit. The spirit gives life. God breathed into Adam the breath of life. Adam was animated by God's breath, his spirit in both Hebrew and Greek. The word breath and the word spirit are the exact same word. All men derive their life from God's breath, from God's spirit. In Job, Elihu understood this. He says, the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. In Numbers 27, Moses speaks about the God whose spirit gives life to all flesh. Jesus says in John 6, it is the spirit who gives life, which means if you're alive, it's because God is allowing you to be alive. If you are alive, it is because God has given you breath. The fact that your lungs are expanding and contracting means that God has put breath in you. No one, therefore, is entirely independent of God's blessing and mercy. And no one can go into eternity saying, I didn't know there was a living God. No, you do know because God has put his breath in you. Romans 1 says, though, you have to suppress the knowledge of the truth. The spirit is there with every breath you take. And so if you're going to deny his presence, you have to, to create falsehood. You have to create lies. You have to stop up your ears and convince yourself that he isn't there. So the spirit gives temporary life to human bodies, but to those who submit to him, he gives eternal life. And by life, I, I don't just mean existence but sustaining an everlasting order and structure and meaning and relevance and joy and blessing. There are all kinds of counterfeit remodeling methods. There are all kinds of counterfeit regeneration plans. And it's all just in the end duct tape and bailing wire to try to hold things together. Uh, apart from God's Holy Spirit, you might be able to discipline yourself in the short term and beat yourself into submission, into some kind of order on the, that, that looks like order on the outside. And the only reason you're able to do that is because you live in a world that is ordered by the Spirit. Things work a certain way because the Holy Spirit has ordered the world. But long-term, consistent order, eternal order, the ability to manage sin and manage guilt, to conform body and soul to God's order, that comes only from the Holy Spirit. You must be in conformity to your Creator to have this structure and order that He brings. The confusing part and the shameful part of all of this, the reality is that there are Christians who are united to Jesus by the Spirit, 
who are indwelled by the Spirit, whose behaviors and thoughts are anything but orderly. Their lives are in total disarray. They're full of confusion and chaos. Everything reflects the opposite of this creation progression. Their life is very much stuck in verse 2. There's darkness. Their uh, lives are without form. They're void. They're shapeless. They're empty. They're dark. Confusion and chaos. And uh, it's tragic because even though they've repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus... They're resisting the Holy Spirit's work. They don't want the reformation and the regeneration that comes with submitting to the Spirit. On Pentecost, the Spirit is God's gift to the church, and the disordered Christian says, no thanks, I'm good, I don't need that. Well, what exactly are they rejecting? Let's summarize this. From the creation week, what have we seen? The Spirit is a source of light. He's the recreator who pulls things apart and puts them back together in more glorious ways. He clothes us with glory. He puts us under his righteous governance. He puts us in great swarms of community in his body. He makes us fruitful and he gives us increase. He gives us everlasting spiritual life. But the disordered person says, I really don't want any of that. I'm good. I don't want light. I really don't care about what God's word says. So I'm not reading it. I'm daydreaming when the pastor is talking or when the elder is reading scripture in church. I go to church, but I'm just not paying attention. I'm impervious to God's word. When God says, let there be light, I put on sunglasses. I I don't want to see it because I'm really happy in the dark. When God starts pulling things apart and taking away things that are not helpful, when he demands that I throw away my idols and tear down the strongholds of Satan, I'm not really interested in that because those things are my only source of pleasure and fun. I want to keep those. I don't want to get rid of them. I'm not really interested in pleasing the Lord Jesus or knowing the pleasure of obeying him. I'm pretty happy with what I've got. And I really don't want to be clothed with his glory. I don't don't like that idea. I like wearing the boring, homogenized uniform of the world. I like being identified with death and rebellion and spiritual barrenness. That's what I like. And I'm not going to be governed. You, You better get that right out of your mind right now. I'm not going to be governed. I'm not going to submit to anybody or anything. I'm not going to put myself under any authority or listen to anybody. I want my freedom and I want my comfort and you can just leave me alone. And when it comes to fruitfulness in community and lots of people around me, I don't need other people. Thanks, but no thanks. I reject all that. I reject life. I reject God's order. I prefer to figure it out myself. I like the tree on my house. Thank you very much. It's just fine. I'll live with it. You wonder why there are so many things in our life, in our world that are called disorders. Why is everybody walking around with a disorder? Well, we're a disorderly people. We're subject to disorders because we reject God's creation ordinances and his order. We invite demons to play in our heads and hearts and homes and imaginations, and we don't submit ourselves to the spirit. And so the curse is we don't have rest. We don't have peace in our relationships. We don't have children who obey our authority because we resist God's Holy Spirit and his work to reshape us. We have disorder. Rest And peace, however, is where this whole process of creation is headed, right? On day seven, God rests. That's what you get with the work of the Spirit. The end, the goal, is rest. At rest and at peace with yourself. At rest with your family and your fellow man. 
at rest with creation, at rest with God. But because we're stuck back in the void, in the formlessness, we're at war. We're constantly fomenting. We're in battle. We're constantly uh, churning up grief and worry and confusion and guilt and weakness and complete lack of fruitfulness. Why? Suppose we've just, we're just living with the disorder. Why are you always upset about something? Why do you always have something to complain about? Why are you always out of joint with the people in your life? It's because you're not submitted to the Holy Spirit. He is the one who brings order. He is the one who brings structure. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that for most of us in this room, if not all of us, there is a part of our lives that's not enjoying Sabbath rest. There's a part of us that is not at rest. There is a part of your life that is at war because it is out of conformity with God's Holy Spirit. Is that too much of a stretch? Am I, am I assuming too much? Can you identify an, a, a disordered part of your life? Maybe you have a hard time isolating just one thing because there's so much destruction. There's so much chaos. Your house has been stomped on by Godzilla and it's, it's in rubble. It's in ruin. Okay, focus, clarify. You can only start with one thing. Isolate one thing. Can you think of something? Can you think of one thing that's out of order? Can you submit that disordered part of your life to the Holy Spirit's regenerative work? Can you pray that he would shed his light on it, that he would shine his light on it? How does he do that? Well, uh, start by reading everything that the Bible has to say about that thing and then read it again. And what do the church fathers say about it? What do the reformers say about it? What's other helpful Christian literature? What other good teachers can shed light on this? Shine the light, that's day one. Day two, Ask him to pull it apart for you. Separate you from it. Make you into something new. Smash the idols. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. This calls for drastic measures. Day three, ask him to clothe you with glory. Clothe you with righteousness and the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus in such a way that you grow to love the lovely and hate the ugly things, that you have a new taste for righteousness and pure things. And day four, what does he do on day four? He gives you uh, authority. He gives you self-control. He gives you self-discipline. He puts you under authority, puts you under accountability, helps you order your life rightly in this one thing, in this one area. What happens on day five of creation? Well, he puts you with people who engage you in righteousness. Consider how he might make you fruitful, how the time and money and effort you wasted in disorder can be redirected into order that multiplies and benefits other people. On day six, what does he do? Well, you pray that he gives you new life, that he makes you into a new kind of person, that he gives you a change that transforms everything, your whole being, so that you can truly rest on day seven. That's the trajectory of creation. It goes from chaos to Sabbath, and it's all guided by the work of the Holy Spirit. If, if you need help with any of that, I can help you. There are other people in the congregation who can help you walk in the Spirit. But my prayer is that you no longer make excuses for the void. Don't make excuses for the tree on top of your house but that you submit yourself to the work of the Holy Spirit. If he can transform the void into this beautiful world that we live in, what can he do with your mess? Pray that God would fill you with his spirit and he would transform you, that you would submit to his work. Let's give thanks and pray.
Father in heaven, we do, in fact, pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit in such a way that you would bring all disordered things into order, that you would transform us and conform us more and more to the image of your Son. Cause us, we pray, not to reject the leading of the Holy Spirit, not to grieve your Holy Spirit, but to invite him in, in all of his creative and recreative work and submit every part of ourselves to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.